I'm David Weaver, and another great week for Jay Leonard, our producer extraordinaire of The Last Frankenstein, and his recent directorial effort, Break Glass. We mentioned last week that the film had been accepted into the Buffalo Dreams Fantastic Film Festival, where The Last Frankenstein also played, and it was just since that last episode that the uh, award nominations for that event came out, and Break Glass was nominated for uh, several of them including Outstanding Comedy or Drama Feature, Outstanding Screenplay, which Jay wrote that as well, Outstanding Male Performance for Ricky DeRosa, and Outstanding Female Performance for Susanna Bourne. So big shout-out to Jay and his team for those nominations. And they also just today announced that they were accepted into another film festival, the North Hollywood Cinefest. So great that they will be uh, in a festival in Los Angeles itself. Get some of that West Coast love. Of course, among the cast of Break Glass is Keely Sheridan, who is also a veteran of The Last Frankenstein, plays Paula, the nurse with a shady past. And we just want to give a shout out to her because she's embarking on a a new part of her artistic career. She has accepted the position of artistic director at the Irish Classical Theater out in Buffalo, New York. So just a big props to her. Um, I know that just uh, the theater itself is a, something that very s- much speaks to her, speaks very strongly to her, and also her Irish heritage. She's studied directing over in Ireland. So uh, really glad to see her get this position and wishing her all the best. We lost a titan of the music industry, Robbie Robertson, uh, guitarist and songwriter in the band and also had been a lead guitarist for Bob Dylan. I'm a big fan of... Uh, a lot of the band's work, which of course pops up in numerous films over the years. Robertson also had a long history with Martin Scorsese. Uh, Scorsese, of course, directed the uh, music documentary concert film The Last Waltz about the band. But um, Robertson also scored a number of Scorsese's films, including The Irishman, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Color of Money. Uh, he also would source music and act as like a music producer on uh, many of his films as well. And he also had a couple uh, bouts with acting. He starred in the early 80s uh, film Carney alongside Jodie Foster and Gary Busey and also had a role in Sean Penn's film The Crossing Guard starring Jack Nicholson. And he was uh, 80 years old. We also lost actress Linda Haynes, age 75. Haynes' acting career only lasted uh, less than 15 years, but she's one of those performers who left behind these indelible mark, uh, probably best known for her roles in the films Rolling Thunder, uh, the Vietnam vet revenge film with William Devane and Tommy Lee Jones that was written by Paul Schrader and that uh, Quentin Tarantino was a huge fan of. He had, a, for a while, a distribution company called Rolling Thunder, uh, and also her role in uh, the Robert Redford film Brubaker, uh, the prison film, which was actually her last movie that came out in 1980. Uh, she also appeared early in her career in uh, the Japanese-American co-production Latitude Zero, a sci-fi film from uh, veteran Godzilla director Ishiro Honda, and also showed up in such movies as uh, Coffee, the Pam Grier film, the Paul Newman private eye movie The Drowning Pool, uh, the uh, Jason Miller cop film The Nickel Ride, and the uh, exploitation movie Human Experiments. But, yep, retired from uh, 
left acting behind and actually became a legal assistant down in Florida. And another actress who we lost, who also left acting early to pursue a different career, was uh, Shelley Smith, who just passed away at age 70. She starred on two short-lived series back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s. She was in The Associates, which was a uh, legal comedy uh, with an ensemble cast, co-created by James L. Brooks before he went on to win several Oscars for films like Terms of Endearment and As Good As It Gets. And it also co-starred uh, Martin Short, uh, had an Allie Mills before she was the mother on The Wonder Years, a veteran uh, character actor, British character actor, Wilfred Hyde-White, and uh, young Tim Thomerson. And actually got very good reviews, a couple Emmy nominations, but just only lasted the one season from 1979 to 1980. And Smith also appeared in the uh, military show For Love and Honor, which also only lasted one season from 1983 to 1984. But she was uh, very often seen as a panelist on game shows, uh, very recognizable uh, from appearances on Body Language, Super Password, and various incarnations of the Pyramid franchise. Uh, she had a couple of feature film roles. She was in National Lampoon's Class Reunion, as well as the movie Fatal Charm, uh, did a bunch of fashion model work, but uh, left acting to obtain her master's degree in psychology, and she worked as a marriage and family therapist. And lastly, we lost Clarence Avant, who was nicknamed the Black Godfather. He was this entertainment legend who was uh, just has so many accomplishments. He was the uh, person responsible for convincing Jim Brown to go into acting. He uh, managed uh, talents ranging from uh, you know, famed composer Lalo Schifrin to singer Sarah Vaughan. He was the chairman of the board over at Motown Records and the first African-American board member at Polygram. He oversold the sale of Stax Records back in the day. Uh, he negotiated, at the time, it was the largest endorsement deal ever in professional sports history for Hank Aaron. Uh, he promoted Michael Jackson's first solo tour. He worked on behalf of civil rights. He was an advisor to several presidents, people from both parties. And, uh, and more directly in terms of films, he was a producer on movies such as Jason's Lyric and the uh, 1975 urban drama Deliver Us From Evil. And his own life was uh, the subject of a, a very well-received 2019 documentary, B The Black Godfather, directed by Reginald Hudlin. And yeah, passed away at age 92, but just an incredible legacy he left behind uh, in all these different ways. So great news for fans of classic horror um, and uh, classic uh, connexploitation films is that the 1980 Canadian horror film Funeral Home, which also is known by the title Cries in the Night, is finally getting a legit decent release. This movie has probably been included on every 25 movie, 50 movie, 10 movie horror set ever. Uh, every dollar DVD bin you could think of, always taken from the, some ancient VHS tape master. I think the best release it ever had was Betamax. And for whatever reason, just kind of languished in that kind of uh, purgatory of physical media. And a German company, I believe it's a German company, uh, Focus Media, announced that they are doing a restoration from the original 35mm camera negative and in uh, different comments they made on social media, uh, let it be known that Shout Factory, Scream Factory, here in the U.S. will be uh, releasing the same master. So no word yet when that will be in the U.S. or if it's going to be a uh, widespread release from Scream Factory or some one of their ex exclusive uh, website-only uh, titles. But just great to finally see that this is kind of going to get the love. This movie was directed by William Fruitt, who is uh, one of the better known uh, after, obviously, 
the heavy hitter David Cronenberg, one of the better known directors of genre and exploitation cinema out of Canada. During this time period, he did movies like Spasms uh, with Peter Fonda. He did Death Weekend, also known as The House by the Lake, uh, Blue Monkey, uh, just uh, you know a number of uh, cult classics that he uh, gave us. And uh, stars uh, Kay Hawtrey, who just passed away uh, a couple years ago, I believe, uh, Leslie Donaldson, and Barry Morse, who, uh, of course, was uh, Detective Gerard on the um, the Fugitive TV show. So Mike, mark this one off your bucket list. It's finally going to happen. Sony also announced uh, a new release of interest to not only film fans, but Last Frankenstein fans, uh, diehard Last Frankenstein fans. They're going to be doing a 50th anniversary 4K release of the uh, classic 1973 Robert Redford, Barbara Streisand film, The Way We Were. Uh, this was actually teased a while back that they were doing a 4K of this, and then it seemed to kind of go off the radar. Um, but now they have kind of just uh, uh, confirmed that it is going to be happening, coming out in October. And of course, film lovers know this movie, uh, directed by Sidney Pollack, Academy Award nominated uh, film, beloved of the, uh, the decade of the 70s. But fans of uh, local history, local film history, know that this movie was uh, partially shot not too far away from uh, uh, Gila Films headquarters. Scenes for this movie were shot in uh, Boston Spa and I think Saratoga as well, which that's like a, about a half an hour away uh, from Amsterdam. They also filmed scenes at Union College in Schenectady, uh, which is just like, you know, 20 minutes away. Uh, my uncle actually graduated from Union College and uh, Keeley Sheridan, uh, was uh, teaching at Union College up until this new position she got as an artistic director at the, the Irish Classical Theater. But obviously a lot of local people were extras in the movie, and including uh, Bob Going, uh, the wonderful Bob Going, who appears in The Last Frankenstein as the pharmacist. And he would uh, uh, regale me with uh, tales of meeting Robert Redford on set. And so, yeah, uh, a little a little connection there to uh, The Last Frankenstein, but a film that... Uh, local people are very familiar with because of its history here. I, I know that they've already started popping up some. There was a Facebook group uh, already popped up just recently uh, celebrating the 50th anniversary and uh, its local connection. So cool to finally see this get a, a 4K release. I'll see if I can spot Bob somewhere in the crowd. I know he's in a, I guess he's an extra in a scene where uh, Redford is dancing. It's like some kind of ballroom scene or something and uh, Bob's, Bob's in the background there somewhere. So turning over to the mailbag, the mailbox, we did have a question come in from one of our listeners asking, are you looking at restoring any other films besides UFO Target Earth? And the answer to that is a yes with a caveat, which of course is that one needs to finish the first movie before moving on to others. But yes, there are some other movies uh, kind of in the same ballpark as UFO Target Earth in terms of... Um, where they stand, their kind of status among fans and uh, critics. Uh, movies that I think probably are l much less likely to get picked up by some of the other boutique labels, um, but movies that have a special place in my heart. I mean, that's the kind of thing with UFO Target Earth is that I, was, I consider myself very fortunate that I was able to uh, acquire it, but that really only came about because multiple other labels passed over it. I think it was four of the labels turned it down. So there are some uh, specific titles, uh, some science fiction, some horror, even some other genres too, that I 
kind of have my eye on. I've done some preliminary research in terms of finding out where they are, um, what's going on with them. But again, it really all depends on what happens to the UFO target Earth and getting that done first. All right, and now we are turning to the movie of the week. We're going back to Burt Reynolds, who we discussed many episodes ago. Uh, we talked about his film Malone and where that kind of stood in what was a decline, a declining period in his career. And t- tonight we're going to talk about uh, a film that came out not too long before that, from 1986, Heat. Uh, no relation whatsoever to the Michael Mann film. This was instead based on a novel by William Goldman, who also wrote the script. Uh, the legendary William Goldman, famous one of the, one of the most famous of screenwriters of the second half of the 20th century, won Oscars for uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and All the President's Men. Um, also wrote films like uh, The Stepford Wives, Harper with Paul Newman, um, adapted several of his own novels into screenplays like The Princess Bride and um, uh, Marathon Man. Uh, he wrote Rob Reiner's Misery, the, the Stephen King novel, I mean, sorry, the Stephen King film with Kathy Bates. Really big name, obviously. And uh, in this film, uh, Reynolds plays a guy named Nick Escalante. And he's this individual with this kind of highly regarded past history as a, as a soldier and a mercenary. But now he's kind of quite a bit past those glory days. Uh, now he's working as a bodyguard in Las Vegas. Shares an office with a, uh, an attorney played by the wonderful Howard Hespin of WKRP in Cincinnati. And dreams of being able to one day make enough money so that he can one day uh, live in Venice. That's, that's his dream. And among the people he knows in Vegas uh, that Nick uh, is on good terms with is an escort girl, a prostitute named Holly, who kind of serves as like an older brother figure too. Uh, he's known her since she was a kid. And she ends up getting badly beaten by uh, a young hood named Danny DeMarco, played by Neil Barry, who's the son of a uh, high-profile criminal out on, from the East Coast. And she wants revenge on this guy and his, his two uh, super-muscular bodyguards for what they've done to her, for raping her and humiliating her. And so she wants to enlist Nick to help her, but he knows that this is, this is a death wish, really, because it's, it's the mob, and uh, anything they do to this guy uh, will be paid back to them many times over. And as he's uh, going about assisting Holly with this and getting in, uh, involved in this, he's also taken on a client through his uh, services as a professional bodyguard, a young uh, man named Cyrus Kinnick, played by Peter McNichol. And Cyrus is a very successful businessman, uh, very wealthy for his young age, but he also is someone who lives life fearfully and is aware of this and wants to overcome that and looks at Nick Escalante, someone who he's read about in the exploits that Nick has had in the past, and looks at him as someone who can, uh, you know, as he kind of says in one part, uh, teach him to live a, a braver life. Now, we talked about the decline of Burt Reynolds' career in that prior episode about Malone. And, you know, it's 
it's been covered many times often about how Reynolds was basically one of the biggest, if not the biggest movie stars out of America in the late seventies into the early eighties from 1978 to 1982, he was voted the most popular actor. And I mean, just, even though it kind of seeds for his uh, success were playing with films like uh, Deliverance and White Lightning and The Longest Yard, it was really Smoking the Bandit in 1977 that just completely took him to a new stratosphere. It was the second highest grossing film after Star Wars. And he just followed that up with a string of hits, films like uh, Hooper uh, and uh, The Cannonball Run, Smoking the Bandit 2, even uh, films like Best Friends with Goldie Hawn, uh, which was, you know, not an action movie, it was a comedy, uh, did well. Uh, the Best Little Whorehouse in Texas. And it was really, you know, Reynolds always pointed to, it, and you, if you look at the pattern, it really is true that it was Stroker Ace, a film he did in 1983 that was kind of the beginning of the end. That's where Reynolds said he really kind of lost his his fan base. It was a film that he did essentially because he felt he owed it to the director, Hal Needham, who had uh, done films like Cooper and the first two Smoking the Bandits and Cannibal Run. And in doing that film, he actually turned down the chance to do the Jack Nicholson role from Terms of Endearment. And from there, it was just a steady decline with films that just kept bombing with the critics and at the box office. Movies like The Man Who Loved Women and Stick and uh, City Heat, which you know did make some money uh, above its production cost, but was uh, uh, really ripped apart by the critics and had a really troublesome production. Kind of like the only really big bright spot in this whole time was the second Cannibal Run movie, which uh, did did do well at the box office, not as well as the first one. And Heat was just another rung uh, in the ladder going down. Uh, you know, we talked about Malone, how how poorly that did at the box office. That would be the film that he would do after this. And he also really, you know, aside from its its poor business at the box office, it, it brought in like just under $2.8 million on a $12 million budget. Um, it also just had a really, really difficult production uh, production time. Uh, originally, it was intended to be directed by Robert Altman, uh, you know, famed director of films uh, by this point, like MASH and Nashville, McCabe and Mrs. Miller. And Altman, his issue uh, came with uh, Wave Goldman. That's kind of you know, theorized that's kind of why he eventually uh, left the project. He really didn't like Goldman's script, thought it was uh, too commercial. And he met Goldman and actually got along well with him, but Goldman wouldn't change the script. Um, and so Altman, he uh, essentially used uh, an excuse to get out of the film by, you know, claiming because his cinematographer, Pierre Bignot, uh, was, who is from Canada, would not be able to obtain the, the permits to work on the film. Um, Altman used that as kind of his way to exit, exit the film. And so brought on to direct the movie and who did the pre-production and the casting was a director by the name of Dick Richards. And Richards would, had been a very successful commercial director who had transitioned into uh, feature film work in the early 1970s. And uh, starting out with the Culpepper Cattle Company, uh, a Western, which has a pretty decent following. And the same could be said for his next two movies, um, Rafferty and the Gold Dust Twins with Alan Arkin, and Farewell, My Lovely, which was the first of two movies in which Robert Mitchum played um, the private eye Philip Marlowe, Raven Chandler's private eye. Uh, and that film even actually got an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress for Sylvia Miles. His fourth film, uh, March or Die, 1977, was a, a troubled production, a uh, French Foreign Legion affair with Gene Hackman, where Hackman was injured and the film went over budget. Um, 
and also Hagman really didn't get along well with his leading lady, Catherine Deneuve. And it would be f- five years after the release of that movie to uh, uh, less than uh, desirable box office returns before he would helm another movie, the 1982 slasher film Death Valley, uh, or suspense film might be a more appropriate title for that, uh, which starred Peter Billingsley uh, before he, uh, right before he showed up in A Christmas Story as Ralphie. 1983, uh, Man, Woman, and Child with Martin Sheen. And then it would be three years before he tackled Heat, which would end up being his final directorial effort. But in this time, he had also uh, actually got an Academy Award nomination uh, for producing Tootsie. He had uh, helped bring that script to the big screen and um, got a Best Picture nom for that. So he came on board. He did the casting for Heat. He uh, did the prep work. But he and Reynolds did not get along at all. Um, and things got to the point where actually it came to blows. And Reynolds ended up punching Richards, um, which led to a uh, $25 million lawsuit, which was then settled with Reynolds paying Richards uh, half a million dollars. And you know, Richards himself has talked about how he he did the casting and he was there for 13 days of shooting. And it was then after this incident with Reynolds that he was gone and Jerry Jameson was brought in to direct. Now, Jameson had done a lot of TV movie work. Um, he had done some uh, genre exploitation films earlier in his career, like The Bat People and The Brute Corps. But then later in the 70s, had done some uh, higher profile, bigger budgeted flicks like uh, Airport 77 with Jack Lemmon and an all-star cast and Raised the Titanic. So then he came to... Uh, pick up kind of where things left off. In the end, though, apparently there were between five to six people who worked as a director on this film. Uh, you know, Richards refers to uh, there being uh, a total of five. And then William Goldman, later in one of his uh, autobiographies, uh, he mentioned there being uh, six. And it, it ended up being a 36-day shoot. And he wouldn't even talk too much in his book, uh, Goldman, about the film because as far as he knew at the time, uh, there were still lawsuits being bandied about from that movie. In the end, the uh, Directors Guild of America, the DGA, did some arbitration and determined that Richards had directed 41% of the film and Jerry Jameson had directed 31%. And I don't know if they ever came to any conclusions about the remaining 28%. Um, but Richards ended up with credit on the film, although he built himself as R.M. Richards instead of Dick Richards, and later said he should have just taken his name off it altogether. Uh, he's still with us, by the way, uh, Dick Richards, uh, but yeah, that that did end up being the last film he directed. Actually, Jameson's still with us, too. Um, but here's the thing. Uh, all these problems aside, and despite this film being kind of in this less successful part of Reynolds' uh, career trajectory, it's actually a pretty decent movie. Uh, I quite enjoyed watching it. Um, a huge part of the success of this movie is Peter McNichol, uh, who just delivers this incredible performance as Cyrus. It's uh, incredibly effective uh, in its comedic moments, but also uh, very moving in its more emotional uh, emotional parts. And he has excellent rapport with Reynolds, and he just makes Reynolds even better uh, on the screen when they're together. This was only McNichol's third theatrical feature uh, coming off his film debut in Dragon Slayer in 81 and then Sophie's Choice in 82. Had done a couple uh, TV things in between. But yeah, this was only his third theatrical release. And of course, he would go on to a lot of success on television. Uh, he won the uh, Emmy Award 
for his work on Alec McBeal and also was a regular on Chicago Hope and more recently Veep. But yeah, just a, just a top-tier, uh, amazing performance that he gives in the film and just really elevates the entire the entire project to another level. And like I said, it really uh, makes Burt better just by a virtue of being with him. I think the story, actually, the, the whole idea of... Um, this character of Holly played by Karen Young, who's someone I like a lot, you know, um, a lot of people know her, uh, from Jaws, the revenge. Um, but I also, uh, being a law and order fan, she showed up on there. Uh, she was in Stallone's film daylight, but her whole wanting to seek revenge after being brutalized and, uh, using, uh, Escalante, Burt Reynolds, uh, in this endeavor, you know, is a very engrossing part of the film. And the movie actually starts out uh, intercutting between um, a character-defining moment with Burt Reynolds, which is somewhat played for humor. Uh, intercuts that, though, with um, Holly uh, battered, bruised, trying to make her way to an emergency room. Uh, and it's uh, quite well done, that stuff with her in that opening. Where the film kind of struggles, in part, is with the presenting a full blooded, full-bodied character of Nick Escalante, showing him uh, warts and all in a consistent manner. What we really see most of the time with Burt Reynolds in this film is that he is uh, definitely a man not to mess with, uh, um, a man who could be very dangerous and deadly, a man with a strong sense of uh, uh, personal ethics um, and of honor. But it's very important to the plot uh, during the middle of the film that he's also has this part of him that's an addicted compulsive gambler, but it's like the, f- the film doesn't really want to uh, totally embrace that side of his personality, even though it's very important. It's kind of like they want to bring out the fact that he's a compulsive gambler only when the plot specifically calls for it, which it, it does uh, about halfway through the film. It becomes very key, but how that that kind of addiction and uh, those kind of character traits would be reflected in a per- the totality of a person's character isn't really on display throughout the rest of the film. Um, I don't know if that's because they didn't want to, uh, there was a sense that they didn't want to show this character as too vulnerable, too flawed, too weak. Um, but it's definitely something that kind of stands out and that you, you wish you had seen this kind of more imperfect vision of Escalante throughout the entire entirety of the film instead of just when uh, the narrative calls for it. And the film has populated with uh, a number of supporting characters, like Howard Hessman's character, the attorney. Uh, Diana Scarwood is also on hand as a, uh, a blackjack dealer who's friends with Nick. And there's definitely a sense where you're seeing these characters in little bits and pieces. Um, again, coming in for a scene or two, but you never really get a sense of the world, Nick's world in which he lives, in which he has these relationships with these people. Uh, you know, there's a commentary track on the Blu-ray of this movie that I watched put out by Kina Lorber. They said one of the things that the commentators pointed out was this would have made for an interesting series because there's so much to, more to explore with the relationships of these characters in this film that are friends with Burt Reynolds. And I think there's definite truth to that because you're watching it and you're like, okay, here's this. You know, Howard Hesman's in this scene here, and maybe half an hour later, 45 minutes later, he shows up briefly again. And the same thing with Diana Scarwood. There's also a character uh, named Baby, um, who is an older uh, local uh, 
organized crime boss, but who is on good terms with Burt Reynolds' character. And there's these uh, references to uh, his and Burt's relationship, Escalante and Baby's relationship. But they're references that almost seemed like there was scenes shot for this movie that were left out, uh, even just maybe expositional scenes that would have better uh, fleshed out and explained uh, what their relationship was like because their relationship also becomes key in the film especially as Nick Escalante finds himself getting in deeper, deeper trouble uh, with Johnny DeMarco, the the guy who beat up uh, his prostitute friend, Holly. Um, So I don't know if these issues with not presenting uh, a more detailed, uh, a richer uh, world that Nick lives in and uh, also a richer sense of who he is. I don't know if that's, was always in the script or if that is uh, just maybe reflective of the issues the film went through with so many directors. I mean, as it is, the film, the movie clocks in at uh, like 101 minutes. So if they were to add more stuff in the film, you'd be pushing up against the uh, two-hour mark, I suppose, um, or even past that. And I'm sure that's something they wanted to avoid for a film of this type. But uh, there is also some room, I think, in the middle of the film where they could have tightened things up a little bit, especially as we kind of do get into that kind of addictive uh, gambling uh, part of Burt Reynolds' character. There's definitely room there where they could have trimmed some of those scenes. They're just a little bit repetitive of him uh, playing the cards and whatnot. Which, of course, makes you wonder if Altman, Robert Altman, had directed this film, that would have been something that would have really perfectly been in his wheelhouse to kind of do that more uh, detailed, more lived-in world of Nick Escalante. Uh, You can just imagine that, because that's what he did so well with films, with these multiple multi-character films like MASH and uh, Nashville. The big downside to Altman directing it, of course, I think, would have been that we wouldn't have, we probably wouldn't have had Peter McNichol in it, I would imagine, because Richards did the casting, Dick Richards. And I cannot emphasize again how much that McNichol's performance is key to the success of the film. Interesting thing is that, um, you know, even though Richards is supposed to have done the casting and Altman left the film prior to, you know, things really kind of getting moving, is that, like I said, the role of Johnny DeMarco, this criminal in the film, is played by uh, Neil Barry. And Neil Barry had just before this, his his feature film he had done before this was Altman's movie O.C. and Stiggs, in which he had played Stiggs. Uh, I wonder if there was just any kind of connection between that. Him, maybe that was something that Altman had spoken to the producer about or had had maybe brought him up um, as a possibility just really early uh, in Altman's involvement with Heat and that just kind of made its way into the film itself, him getting cast in that role. Or it could just be coincidence, for sure. The film, as I mentioned, it does, it does have some struggles uh, in the midsection, but then it's interesting because as you get towards the end of the film, especially like the final final act or the last half of the final act, it almost kind of then gets into um, almost slasher movie territory, really, where with uh, kind of like the full-blown confrontations between the Cascalante and um, Giant DeMarco and his hoods. Uh, this film definitely has some very memorable uh, kill scenes, um, especially one involving a flying kick into a light bulb. Uh, say no more. The ending itself definitely strikes one as a little pat. The way they go about presenting the Cascalante, again, is as, as this noble, world-weary, uh, potentially dangerous, but chivalrous um, individual who 
is not in the desirable circumstances. You know, he's stuck in Vegas and he really wants to be in Venice living a different kind of life. But other than that, they really don't show him as like a flawed person again, other than that kind of when they really have to show that kind of gambling addictive side of him. And I think if they had kind of really developed that character warts and all throughout the entire film, the conclusion, the ending, even if it was the same events, which maybe it wouldn't have been, it would have at least been of a, a tone uh, more in keeping with what we had seen before. But instead we kind of get, you know, I'm not going to get the spoilers, obviously, but we kind of get like a, a, a typical uh, ending you'd expect of the good guy hero in an 80s action movie. Um, there was actually an alternate ending shot uh, for this movie, which is a bonus on the disc. And that would have been even worse had they gone with that. It was very obvious if you from the hairstyles of the actors in that scene that it was shot later and definitely uh, only makes things uh, worse. But the ending they give for the movie, like I said, it's it's not surprising, the ending, but it's also, the, you know, it is reflective of them not really fully developing that character. It is the logical extension of that. Visually, the film, again, you know, you have half a dozen directors, but it has, I mean, it has some moments that are, uh, that are striking. Um, there's a, a scene between uh, Peter McNichol and Burt Reynolds on a rooftop uh, above downtown uh, Las Vegas at nighttime that's uh, pretty nicely done. Um, but for the most part, I'd say visually it's it's more workmanlike than anything else. It's never, you know, never bad nor really eye-catching. Uh, again, kind of that, that end confrontation that kind of gets into some horror movie territory has a bit of has a nice style to it, but yeah, overall, definitely still a very competently shot film. It is a Christmas movie, and it's always kind of, uh, I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of older Christmas movies and Christmas movies in general, and there's nothing like popping in a movie and not realizing before you're going to watch it that it's a Christmas film set at Christmas time, and then it's like, oh, I've caught in that dilemma, should I hold off on this till December? Um, I went ahead and watched it because I didn't want to spend two hours trying to pick another movie, but it is set at Christmas time, and uh, so it definitely gets a, an extra point in my book for that. Like I said, the film didn't do well at the box office, and the critics really tore into it. I guess it's, on one hand, I can see why it wouldn't do well at the box office, because it doesn't have enough action momentum to really appeal to action fans. There's, like, too much character and... Uh, too much narrative, um, but at the same time, like I said, those those aspects of the film aren't as richly developed or as fully developed as you want to maybe appeal to the people who might be more uh, more in line to see uh, a neo noir or um, a character rich uh, crime film. So it's kind of straddles the fence and might not appeal to either one of those audiences enough. And top of of course the the difficulties with the production, which don't. Uh, don't advertise well for your film and also, of course, add to your production costs and therefore require uh, more money to come in to be profitable. It's not fair, though, really to totally because the movie, like I said, the movie is, um, despite its flaws, a very a very uh, noble effort and has much to go for it. And it just kind of speaks to how even one, the presence of one actor or actress can make a huge difference because if you had had a uh, just more run-of-the-mill forgettable uh, performance uh, by way of the character of Cyrus, Peter McNichols' character, that would have made all the difference in this movie. I mean, the next film Reynolds did after this was Malone that we reviewed. And 
you know, again, I enjoyed watching that movie, but it, it's just not really good. And if that had had an actor or a character that of the link of of Peter McNichol Cyrus, that could have taken that film to another level. It's just a really big difference made by just this one character, uh, one performance bringing that character to life. Um, really speaks to the ability of just uh, one player in a in a cinematic project can really tip the scales for the entire film. I think it'd be really interesting to see this film remade, which actually already did happen once. Um, the 2015 Jason Statham film Wild Card is a remake of this movie, uh, directed by Simon West, director of Con Air and Expendables 2, and it actually uses the same script, uh, Goldman's same same screenplay. And I have not seen Wild Card, but uh, I do know that it did very badly with uh, critics and box office alike. I did watch the trailer for it. It looked, you know, you don't want to judge a movie by its trailer, really, but at the same time, that does guide you as to what you're going to give up your time to watch, and it just really looked unremarkable to me. I think this is a film that really needs uh, a ground-up remake, though, not just, obviously, going back to that same script. I think this is something, though, that if if properly developed could be a really remarkable uh, uh, movie uh, because this, there's enough there. There's so much there in the story and in the characters to work with. This film has a a lot in it that I could see appealing to someone like a Sam Peckinpah in his prime. I can just imagine what he would do uh, with a film like this, um, especially since he would not have shied away from the uh, uh, less honorable parts or less appealing parts of the Burt Reynolds character in this film. Yeah, did not connect with audiences at the time. And uh, next up was Malone, which had the same fate. And then it was four more in a row. Rana Cop, Switching Channels, Physical Evidence, and Breaking In. And even though Switching Channels and Breaking In, which were kind of different um, different material for Burt at the time, away from the more action-oriented stuff, and even though those two movies do have uh, some strong uh, followings, none of these films did well at the box office. I mean, Rana Cop didn't even bring in a million dollars. And it was then that, uh, you know, Reynolds basically went to back to the small screen where he had done several shows in the past in his career and had success with Evening Shade, but never was able to uh, really reclaim that movie star status, despite still, you know, turning in work like Boogie Nights, which got the Oscar nomination, and, uh, of course, the financial success of Cop and a Half, um, but really never, that, that was it. The, the closing of the 80s really closed out him as uh, a movie star in the uh, a traditional sense. And it's good now that, you know, King Lorber obviously seems to be a huge fan of Burt Reynolds. They've released tons of his films. Um, and it's good to see some of these ones come out because they are a little more neglected in his career. And that's why, even though I reviewed Malone before and, you know, I took, it, took, took some issues with it, I'm excited that they're re-releasing it with a commentary track. And I'm uh, looking forward to diving into that and kind of seeing what insights that might have. And I'm currently making my way through this commentary track too now for this one as well for um, for Heat. little side note, completely irrelevant to most people, but I just feel like I'm putting it out. Uh, not Before I did this podcast, I saw, not too long before I started doing the podcast, I saw a film called The Sterile Cuckoo with Liza Minnelli. Uh, it was a film that earned her a Best Actress nomination. And uh, it's an excellent movie, um, directed by Andre Pakula, who would direct all the President's Men, Clue. And it's about Liza Minnelli uh, playing uh, a college student, uh, eccentric college student who falls in love with a more uh, 
introverted uh, uh, fellow male college student uh, played by an actor named Wendell Burton. And Burton, this would this would actually be Burton's last film, Heat. Um, he, after uh, The Sterile Cuckoo, he did some other lead work, but wasn't really able quite able to build upon the success of The Sterile Cuckoo to really establish himself. Um, and that was, of course, 1969 that that came out. And then in this film, in Heat, he's uh, the character of Osgood in the film's opening, which you'll know who that is once you see it. Um, but yeah, this he left acting behind after this. Or I should say shortly after this. He did have a couple of TV appearances after this uh, movie. But he had become involved uh, in evangelical Christianity in the late 70s and um, eventually got involved with that, uh, working in uh, the religious field later in life um, and also teaching uh, teaching drama before uh, sadly passing away just a few years ago, 2017, of uh, brain cancer when he was only 69 years old. But just uh, was made a bigger pressure upon me, the sterile cuckoo, and thought it was interesting that he has this kind of very, very, it's smaller, but it's a very important and prominent role uh, in the opening of the movie. So Heat with Burt Reynolds, 1986. Uh, definitely something I recommend watching uh, despite its imperfections. I, I think it's, it's definitely worth uh, a spin. All right, I think that's going to do it for this week. Thank you again for tuning in to Carpet City Cinema. Uh, please continue to follow us on our various social media pages and uh, spread the good news about our podcast and Gila Films and The Last Frankenstein and all we're doing because we really appreciate you taking the time to do that. And we will be back next week. <laughs>